Last, last week, how many people remember that I left an old man standing at the end of a pier feeding seagulls with a bucket of shrimp? Oh, okay, good. No, but there's only six of you that remember it, so you can see me afterwards and I'll tell you about it. But anyway, I, I, I left an old man that, uh, that was at the end of a pier. He was feeding a bunch of seagull with a bucket of shrimp. So if you weren't here, that pretty much brings you up to date. But uh, what we're going to talk about this morning is how do we stand firm when we're tested. Several years ago, a psychologist, her name was Ruth Berenda, and her associates carried out an interesting experiment. And basically, the experiment went something like this. They wanted to find the effects that peer pressure had on young people, in particular teenagers. So what they did was they conducted this experiment, and the experiment worked like this. They took 10 teenage students, and they brought them into a room. Nine of them were told what to do. The tenth one was not. And so they wanted to find out how much impact peer pressure had. And so what they did was they took this chart and they flipped this chart and they showed this chart. Can you see the chart? Okay, kind of. All right, here's what they did. They said, no matter what, to the nine, to the nine, they said, no matter what we say, the right answer is always the second longest line. No matter what we ask for. If we ask for the shortest line, the answer is the second longest line. If we ask for the longest line, the answer is the second longest line. So no matter what we ask, that's the answer. So nine of the ten always knew what they were supposed to do. So they'd say this. Okay, which one is the longest line? Raise your hands. Is this one the longest line? Guess what happened? Nine out of the ten raised their hand. What did the tenth one do? Huh? The tenth one kind of looked around and went. <laughs> then they went to the next one. Okay. Is this the longest line? And the one went. Nobody raised their hand. Said, is this the longest line? Nine hands shot up. So did the tenth one. And on and on it went as they looked at these charts. It was interesting in that 80% of the kids that they brought into a room, that 10th person went along with the group, 80% of the time. That's fascinating. And it's also very frightening. Here's her conclusion. She said, the experiment began with nine teenagers voting for the wrong line. The stooge would typically glance around, frown in confusion, slip his hand up with the rest of the group. The instructions were repeated, the next card was raised. Time after time, the self-conscious stooge would sit there saying a short line is longer than a long line. Oh, how mean to call him a stooge, huh? Said, anyway, time after time, the self-conscious stooge would sit there saying a short line is longer than a long line simply because he lacked the courage to challenge the group. This remarkable conformity occurred in about 80% of the cases and was true of small children as well as high school students. Brenda concluded that, quote, Some people had rather be president than be right. Yeah, you know, if this was a little later in the day, you'd have picked up on that right away. So now I got it. There's a little delayed reaction that's going to go on here today. But uh, think about it for a moment. They would have rather been president than be right. Isn't that fascinating? Now, that's, that's very frightening if you think about it from the implication that you have as far as a classroom setting. 
But if you take that out of a controlled classroom setting and then put it into society that we have to deal with on a regular basis, the moral and the ethical implications of that are frightening. And we see it happening all around us. I want to share something with you as we go through this, and I want you to think about this. How many of you have children that are still at home? Okay. And for those of you who don't have children still at home, I would imagine that you'd have some influence over your grandchildren. And if you don't have any children at all, then think about this. This is applicable to you as well. If we don't teach our children, and if we haven't come to grips on this ourselves, we're going to stick our kids out into a world that they're not going to be able to handle. There's no way. They're not going to be able to handle it. Because they're going to have self-doubts, and when they're uncertain, the first thing that they're going to do is they're going to conform to the group that they're with. So that's why 1 Corinthians 15, 13 says, don't be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals. Don't kid yourself that who we associate with is who we will become. And who our kids hang out with is what they're all about and what they will become. And they could say whatever they want to say, but the reality of it is that they will be influenced in a negative way more so than they'll influence others in a positive way. It's very important that we understand that. Let me illustrate it to you. Some of us are in a situation where we like to put our kids, we, you know, they grew up in a, quote, Christian environment. We bring them to church with us. Some of us send them to private schools. And they're in this Christian vacuum every, every hour of their life to a certain degree. Now, if you're fortunate enough to be able to put them in a Christian high school or whatever, then it's still inevitably going to come to a day where they're going to leave and they're going to either go to maybe even a Christian college. But let me just tell you something about the real world that we live in. You got your head in the sand if you think you can keep shipping your kids to Christian schools and they're not going to be influenced in any way by the problems that we have in the world as a whole. Because there are a lot of people who don't want to spend time teaching their children anything. So what they do is they get a couple extra dollars in the bank or they'll go out and borrow it so that they can send their kids somewhere else where somebody else can teach their kids some values, but they're not doing it at home. Or you got schools that have extended daycare programs because some two people are working, they want to drop them off at 6 in the morning and pick them up at 6 at night, and public schools aren't conducive to that environment, so they stick those kids in private schools, and they say, hey, guess what? There's a lot of influence that's taking place in private schools. I kicked him off the end, and he drowned. Not really. You're going to like this story, too, because you were alive when this really happened. <clears throat> but anyway, let's get back to what we're talking about. The, the, so the problem that we have is that we need to prepare our children as well as ourselves to be able to deal with the real world they're going to be put in. And oftentimes we don't do that because it's a lot easier to hope somebody else is doing it than for us to do it ourselves. And we need to take care of business at home. And so what this basically is going to be is a, is a matter of trying to come up with some way to teach our children to stand firm when tested in the world around us that are opposed to the things of God. And it's very simple. I mean, that's the way that it is. How many, is there any school teachers in here? Any school teachers? Oh, good. Let me ask... What, what's the purpose of a test? Why do you give tests? 
Wait, 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 wait. Are you a teacher? Oh, you are? Well, then you know better than that. Raise your hand if you want to be acknowledged. What? I always wanted to do that. I always wanted to do that. You know, I put up with it all my life, and I'm getting sick and tired of teachers being able to yell at, and we had to raise our hand. So I'm in control here this morning. I'm up on this step. Just kidding. We'll be back to you in a minute. Because, but then I'm not sure. Well, it doesn't matter what she says. She's going to be wrong because I always want to tell a teacher, you are wrong. That's wrong. No, just kidding. Why do you give, why do you give tests? Okay, wait, 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 because they can't hear you. Number one, you give a test to see if the class is catching what you're throwing. Okay. I, I just put it in the street talk there. That's cool. Alright, that's the first thing. And to see who's ducking, right? <laughs> okay. Okay, and to see how each individual has progressed. So we give we give tests to see if they're catching what we're throwing, see who's ducking, and see who's progressing. That sum it up? You're afraid to answer now, are you? No, tell me what you really think of me. No, don't. <laughs> yeah, I'm not answer you. Fine. Um, anybody else? Okay, do you hear? And to see who's struggling, who isn't catching on, who needs some individual help, to see who's you know just not keeping up with everything that's going on, right? That's fascinating, isn't it? Every every question, every every reason that we've been given so far for the reason that tests are given is to evaluate the teacher in some degree on whether he or she is getting the lesson across to the students. Now, let me ask you this. Then why does God test us? Huh? Why does God test us? Huh? Turn to James, turn to James chapter 1. Why does God test us? See, it's fascinating to me if you think about it because we're, we're basically looking at how do we stand firm when tested or how do we hang in there when we're being tested. And the question that I have, have to ask myself is, well, why does God test me? Okay, let's look at it. Uh, James 1, start with verse 2. We reconsider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him in faith, let him ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man expect that he'll receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Give me some reasons why God tests us. 
to perfect us, which means basically what? What's perfection? Another name for perfection all throughout Scripture. Maturity. He tests us so that we will grow up in our faith. He tests us so that we will go from this level of spiritual understanding to a higher level of spiritual understanding. He tests us for the purpose of helping us to grow up, to stop acting like spiritual kids and to start to act like spiritual adults. That's the goal of Scripture. That's the goal of God in our life. He wants us not... You know, it's interesting. I was was sharing at one time that in every area of our life, we have a desire to grow up. Every area of our life, we are not content to stay status quo. Every area of our life, we always push forward to the higher level. Whether we play any kind of athletics and you're on a junior varsity team, you want to be on the varsity team. Or you want to be on the varsity team, you're not happy to be there, you want to play. And if you're playing, you want to be All-American or All-Conference or All-Pro if you're in the pros. Nobody's ever content at status quo. We're always striving to achieve the next higher level. And yet, for some reason in our spiritual life, we're content just to stay on the team. I'm just glad to be on the team. I don't care if I ever get in the game. I just like happy to be here. And yet, God says, wait a minute. I don't want you to be happy just to be on the team. I want you to strive to play the game, to run the race, to fight the fight, to keep the course, to keep the faith. I want you to do something. God doesn't need a whole bunch of people just to be happy to be on the team. He needs people to go out there and recruit more people to be on the team. He wants to see people out there fighting the fight in the game. And so the reason that he tests us is to bring us to perfection. But why also does he test us? To give us endurance, which means what? What? Okay, patience, endurance, stamina. The word essentially means he helps us to get the strength that we need to hang tough under very adverse situations. Now, keep that in light of what we're talking about. How do you stand firm in a world... And not conform to the world, but be transformed by renewed mind. How do you do that unless God tests you with people around you who are pulling you away from God? He produces, He gives us endurance by allowing us to go through that test. The only way that we'll grow up is to go through adversity, but none of us want to pray for adversity, even though we know the end result of adversity is always endurance, and endurance is good because endurance will have its perfect result that will be perfect and complete that will lack in nothing. And I don't know if, how many of you have picked up on this, but as I was going through this passage, for the first time in a long time, it dawned on me that God says, but if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously and above reproach. Wisdom in what? Wisdom in knowing why we're going through the test we're going through. God, what are you doing right now in my life? Why am I going through such a tough time? Why are all these people around me who are trying to lead me in the wrong direction? What is going on? God says, hey... Any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of me, and I'll give him generously and above reproach. Don't worry about not knowing why. What you need to do is ask, hey, why, God? Help me to see. So why does God test us? He tests us because he wants to produce endurance in our life. Now let me ask you something. What does God know about you and me that we don't know about ourselves? Huh? Just about everything. Right? See, we give tests to see from a a teacher's point of view 
We give tests to see who's learning, who's growing for the purpose of evaluating them so that we have some basis to say, hey, they're, they're coming along or they're not. So we have some basis to give them you know, a grade on a report card that goes home. That's why we test students. However, the real reason that we should test students is so that the student will know more about themselves and what they don't know so that then there's some corrective measures that could take place in their life to bring about behavioral changes. Because guess what? I don't know any kid that I ever went to school with and I don't know any of my kids who think they deserve a C when they get a C. You know what they always say? Well, that teacher doesn't know what she's talking about. They don't know and I don't care. It's like, wait a minute, maybe what you need to see is that there's some little deficient area in your life that you need to be working on. See, in the book of Job, Job said this. I mean, God said this about Job. Hey, Satan, you see Job? He's a righteous man. He's blameless in all things. Have you ever considered him? And God allowed Satan to test him with adversity. Not because God didn't know Job's heart. God knew Job. But Job didn't know himself. And he didn't know what depth, of his, what depth he had in his relationship with God. See, some of us come to church and we, and we go to Bible studies and we do all these things and we say things like, you know, yeah, I think i got a real close relationship with the Lord. Well, you don't know whether you do or whether you don't until you go through adversity, which God allows so that it will produce endurance, so that your walk in Christ will be stronger as you go through these things, rather than just being a superficial, self, uh, you know, one inch, one inch deep type of relationship that says, oh yeah, I love the Lord, and I lean on Him, and I trust in Him for everything. And He goes, yeah, well, watch this. I'm going to rip all these things out from underneath you, so you see how far you far and how hard you hit your head on the ground, because you're not leaning on me, you're leaning on your money, you're leaning on your business, you're leaning on your job, you're leaning on your kids, you're leaning on your grandkids, you're leaning on your spouse, you're leaning on everything and everybody else but me, so I'll pull them out from underneath you, and when you hit your nose on the ground, you'll realize what I already know about you. And if you don't think that's true, that's exactly God's way of bringing about endurance in our life so that we can walk away from it saying, Lord, I'm sorry, I thought I was leaning on you, but I really wasn't. I cared more about what people thought than what you think. That's why I go along with the crowd. That's why when nine people raise their hand, I raise my hand too, because I care more about what people think of me than I do about what you think of me. And I never knew it until I was put through the test. See, that's why in Judges 3, 4... God said this, hey, you know what? This is a test. And that's kind of like an emergency broadcast system, you know, God's emergency broadcast. This is a test. For the next however long that you're here on the face of the earth, God is going to test you so that you know exactly how deep a level of relationship that you have with the God that you claim to love. And that's why I said this. They were left, talking about the Canaanites, he said they were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the Lord's commands, which he had given their forefathers through Moses. Okay, the question very simply is this. Why were the Canaanites left in the land to drive Israel crazy? Now, this is open book, okay? <laughs> now, if you ever wanted to answer one, I'd jump on this one. It ain't getting much simpler than this. Huh? That's right. To see if they would obey. That's why. It's like, Lord, man, why are these people in this... Oh, man, why are these people in my life? They're driving me crazy. Man, you know, every time I turn around, they're always in my face. I'm just getting so sick and tired of all the pressure that they're putting on me. What did he say? I know that. I left them there. 
I left them there to stay in your face, to drive you crazy, to bother you, to, to, to drive you nuts. Because I want to see whether or not you're going to fold under the pressure and you're going to conform to the group. You follow that? And this is what amazes me. Let me just, let me just kind of get this off my chest. I hear people all the time say stuff like this. I'm the only Christian at my office. And I say, God help your office. We got that little delay reaction. Is this a radio show or something? We got that, we got that five minute pause that we got working here today. But think about it for a minute. If the only Christian at their office is a wimpy little, snibbling little, snotty faced person that cries and moans all the time about how persecuted they are because they're the only Christian at their office, God help their office. I'd say, yeah, you're right. God needs to send somebody else in there with a little bit of spine and backbone that's going to make an impact on those people because, yeah, they just take you out of there. And what they're asking for is sympathy and empathy and, oh, isn't that terrible? We'll pray for you. Oh, you poor soul. Well, don't ever come to me with that one. I say, man, I pray for your office. That's a shame. But, you know, stop and think about this in a practical setting. Why does God leave those people in your life one, to test you. To see whether you're going to be obedient to His commandments. To see whether you really love Him as you say you do. Because Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That's why, that's why they're there. Just to test you, to see whether you really love the Lord like you say you do. Or if you just love the Lord and you're one of those chameleon Christians. You've all been there. We've seen that. You know, the ones that change colors with whatever group they're in. The ones that have no impact on this world. The ones that you know, people look at and say, well, if you're a Christian, I'm a Christian because we're in the same bar doing the same things with the same gals. So we must all be Christians then. That's the way I see it. You know what I mean? So I, you do what I do. So and you're a Christian. I must be a Christian. So big deal. So what God is saying is that, wait, you know, I'm going to leave those people in your life because, number one, they're going to be a test to see whether you're going to be obedient to me in all sorts of adversity and all circumstances. And also because you are supposed to be a light in this world who's supposed to be used by God to attract people to love and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And the only way they see Jesus is if you let Jesus live through you in a group that's adverse to the things of God by standing firm when you're tested. It's the most marvelous thing in the world when you understand that and you begin to live it. I did that last night. A friend of mine from the Seahawks called. He's the only friend I have left on the Seahawks, by the way. But, uh, but he called and said, oh, man. He goes, I thought Jeff took care of this. I'm really sorry, but can you do the chapel? And so I went up and spent some time with him. And... Uh, you know, they had like four or five guys show up at chapel. And uh, he said, what's going on, you know, with, with, with you guys? I said, man, you know what? God is amazing. So, you know, what's amazing about God is that whatever he says he'll do, he does. If we're obedient to what he asks us to do. And the most incredible thing, he said, what are you talking about? I said, you know, three years ago, two years ago, there were three guys that were committed to live for the Lord. And to pray for their teammates who weren't. And three years later, there's 20-some guys coming every week to Bible study. And guys are on fire for the Lord. And they love the Lord. And you know what's wonderful about it? And, you know, I don't say this publicly, but hey, you know, if they don't win another game all season, they've won in the game of life because they're pleasing to God. 
And I don't care, you know, whether they go Super Bowl or not. It'd be great if they did. And I pray that God would honor them for taking a stand. And that'd be wonderful. But if he chooses not to do it, it doesn't matter. Because, see, the big picture is that there are men now who are committed to Jesus Christ, who love the Lord, and to realize why they're here. And that's to please him in everything that they do. How much of an impact are you having on the world that you're in? I'll tell you what. I don't know any more adverse situation than in the locker room of a professional sports team. I have compassion for people who are tested and tempted regularly, which for most of us is a fantasy, but for them it's a harsh reality. Every day of their life, and the, and the interviews and the magazine stories and the television broadcasts that are coming out because of Magic Johnson and all the things that are going on and the promiscuity that is rampant throughout most sports teams, you don't have a clue how bad it really is. But now we're starting to see. You don't have an understanding of what it's like to be 22 years old and have a million dollars in the bank and have people just throw themselves at you everywhere that you go all across the country. We don't understand that. We can't comprehend that because it doesn't happen to us. But put yourself in that situation. I'll tell you this. I would challenge any of you. I don't care what kind of office environment that you have. I don't care how hostile your family environment is. I don't care what your neighborhood is like. There is nowhere in the world that I have seen personally that is more hostile other than maybe some foreign countries where when you take a stand for Christ, they cut your head off. But I haven't seen anywhere in this country that is more hostile to the things of God than that environment. And to stand firm when you're tested there is, where it's all, is what it's all about. So my challenge to you is, why aren't you doing the same thing? I'm just at a point now, it's like, I don't care anymore. Every person I see has to know that Jesus loves them. I, I, don't, I don't care. I don't care. What do I care about what they think? You know what? So they think I'm nuts. So what? That's the same thing that they think of my kids. When my kids say, I'm not going to do drugs or I'm not going to drink or I'm not going to have sex before I'm married. They got the same pressure in high school and in elementary school. They'll have the same pressure in the world that we have. And we're so concerned about what other people think of us. What makes you think your kids shouldn't be concerned about what other people think of them? The only way you're going to be able to get that message across is if you model it yourself. You tell them, you know what? Don't you worry about what other people think. You do what's right before God. You see, we don't care about what other people think. We're doing what's right before God. We're not going to fold in the pressure, and we would encourage you not to fold either because that doesn't make any difference in light of eternity. The only one that I live to please is God. And if God says it, I don't care how stupid it sounds to the world, that's what we're going to do. You know what? And the world needs to hear that because the world doesn't have any direction. It's going in a thousand different directions at one time, and it's getting more and more screwed up as time goes on. God needs His people to take a stand. And He needs His people to take a stand when they're tested because God allows the tests for His purposes. And His purposes are to strengthen us, to give us endurance, and to bring us to perfection in our faith so that we will become the light that we're supposed to be so He can draw people to Himself because of what we do and say on a daily basis in the arenas that He's put us in. That's what we need to do. So God left the Canaanites there for a specific reason and stopped mumbling and moaning about it. And the point that he was getting across to the Israelites was stop snibbling and being a wimp about it. I left them there for a purpose to test you to see if you'll be obedient. So just hang on, stand firm when you're tested, and I'll take care of you. That's what he did. Now it's interesting because Moses warned there were some problems that Israel would endure. And here's some of them. And uh, basically the bottom line of some things that I want to share with you in the, in the minutes that we have together is Moses warned them about this. He says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, 
and to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give you a land that was large and with flourishing cities that you did not build, houses filled with all kind of good things you did not provide, wells that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He was warning Israel that the pressure to conform would be great, that the pressure to lose their distinctiveness in a world that was not prone to the things of God would be great. And we've got the same problem. He warned us as men and women of God that we would begin to blend into the society in which God has placed us. And he's placed us in this society to be an impact, not to conform. And he goes on and he says that, you know what will happen is that you're going to forget God. We're going to forget God and we're going to forget standards. And he says, fear the Lord your God. Serve him only and take your oaths in his name. Don't follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. For the Lord your God... For the Lord, your God, who is among you, is a jealous God, and his anger will burn against you, and he will destroy you from the face of the land. He's saying that, you know what? You're going to be tempted to go with the flow. You're going to be tempted to go along with the crowd. And I left the crowd there for the purpose of testing you to see whether you would obey me. God already knows whether we're going to obey him or not, but we don't know how solid our relationship is. So he leaves those people in our life. And he's saying, listen, I'm going to warn you of something. When things are going good for you, you're going to forget God. Boy, isn't that funny? When things start going what we call bad, man, we're back down on our knees again. But when things are going good, aren't we smart and aren't we handling life pretty good? And so what he's saying is that, you know what? God is jealous and he does care about the lifestyle of his people. doesn't get any clearer than that. It says, for the Lord is a jealous God and his anger will burn against you and he will destroy you from the face of the land. You know, it's really easy for us to take credit for things in our life. And yet the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do we have that God has not given us? That everything that we have comes from the hand of God. And yet for some reason, a lot of us take credit for those things and God says he's a jealous God. And one thing he always wants us to remember is that he's the one who's responsible for whatever it is that we have. Whether it's financial, whether it's a financial success or whether it's just a success in the area of health in our life, whether it's having children, grandchildren, whatever the blessings are, God says that he is the one who has given those blessings to us. And I want to share with you four quick principles from this and kind of wrap it all together because I think they'll help us. If you're going to stand firm when you're tested or if you want to do something even more practical and that is help your kids to stand firm and tested, realize these four things. Number one, getting something for nothing can breed irresponsibility. If there's one point, if you don't learn anything else, if you want to teach your children something, I am, a, I am amazed, now maybe appalled, at how foolish we are in what we give our children, all because we didn't have those things when we were growing up. And somehow or another, we believe that they are God-given rights to every child in Orange and L.A. County that they should have all these things. Everybody wants something for nothing, and what God says is the worst thing can happen to you is if you get something for nothing. Everyone wants to win the lottery and God says the worst thing that can happen to you is that you win the lottery because you can't handle what little I've given you so far. You're not doing a good job there. Why would I give you more and, and just to have you commit spiritual suicide? But everybody wants something for nothing. Everybody's looking for an inheritance. Everybody wants, wants, gimme, gimme, gimme. And what God says is that, you know what? I'm going to give you this and there's a nice balance here between, hey, you know what? 
I want to give this to you to help you understand the grace of God because often God gives to us even though we don't deserve it. So there's a lesson there. But I don't want to give you something to promote irresponsibility in your life to where all you're always doing is saying, gimme, gimme, gimme. Dad, give me 20. Dad, give me a card. Dad, do this. Mom, dad, dad, man. And it's like, man, how foolish we are to do that. And then we wonder why our kids have zero depth spiritually in their life. We hand them everything. They go out into the world and they have no depth to be able to handle the adversity that comes up before them. God says, hey, you know what? Getting something for nothing can breed irresponsibility. And not only that, irresponsibility creates a careless attitude. When you're handed something for nothing, you don't realize all the sweat that was put into it to be able to have it. Spend a lot more time. If, see, and that's why I believe credit is a, a, a tremendous disservice to our spiritual life. I really do. I believe if, if you want something from a financial standpoint, and you want to buy something, I really believe that you should save for it until you have the money to buy it because two things will happen. One is you'll begin to realize how long it took to save for it and two is it gives God a chance to provide you with that which you think you need in a miraculous way so you can give Him credit for it or three is by the time you save for it to have to buy cash with it you'll think I really don't need that after all it's not worth it. But it's a problem with our indulgent society is you have a credit card, well, it's only going to cost you $22.50 a month so you can have it today. And you don't appreciate how hard it is to earn the money to buy it because it's not that big a deal. So we break it down into little chunks so we don't understand. I would encourage anybody to stop paying for anything on credit and pay everything for cash. And I'll bet you we have a lot less stuff that we have to worry about because we realize how hard it is to get it. And that's a great thing to teach your kids. You want it? Save for it. And I've already seen it with mine. Man, I'm not going to buy that. Man, you know how long it took me to save for that? That's stupid. Good, I'm glad you came to that conclusion. And it was when you asked me for it from the first time that we talked about it. But I'm glad you came to those conclusions on your own. See, and carelessness also leads to a loss of standards. There's no ethical, there's no moral standards. If everything's handed to you, you don't realize how hard it is to get something. You don't realize the price that somebody else paid for it. And as a result, you start to just think, oh, who cares? And the loss of standards prompts personal insecurity. Personal insecurity. You know, we've got a bunch of kids who don't know they, who they are in the Lord because they've never gone through what we went through where he got our attention so we could turn to him. And the reason he got our attention is because a lot of us were struggling in our life in a lot of areas and no one was handing us anything and we realized how difficult life was and we said, man, God, if you're there, make yourself real to me. And he brought people into our life to share how much he loves us with. See, but that's what's going on around us. And so I want to just, in closing, run a couple ideas by you. See if you, can, see if you can identify with these and maybe even put them into your vocabulary because they're phrases and statements that aren't in very many vocabularies. Ready for the first one? I am responsible. Now, I'd ask you what that means, but probably no one knows. I am responsible. Anybody want to kind of take a yes? Anybody? What does this mean? I am responsible. Okay, I'll do what I'll say I'll do. If I say I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. If I say I'll be there, I'll be there. If I say that I'll do such and such, I'll do such and such. Okay, that's one thing. And if it doesn't work, it's my fault. All right? You know, there's nothing more refreshing, and there's nothing that kills an interview quicker than this. What would happen 
when you were pitched the ball and you ran to the outside and you got hit and you fumbled, what happened? Well, if I remember right, he pitched me the ball, I ran to the outside, I got hit and I fumbled. I know, but what happened? I just told you. I fumbled the ball. I dropped the ball. What else do you want me to tell you? I'm responsible. It was my fault. I made a bad play. I screwed up. I, I made a mistake. I cost my team a win. I mean, that's life. It happens. But I, I learn from it, and I'll make sure next time that I hold it different or I hold it harder. But if the guy makes as good a play as he did today, I might drop it again. There's just something refreshing about that, isn't it? I, I'm sorry. It was my fault. We don't live in a society that says, I'm responsible. We live in a society that says, like Adam did from the very beginning, God, it's your fault you gave me this check. I was doing just fine. You're the one that said I was lonely. You made her, you gave her to me, and she's the one that caused it all. And the way I see it is if you're not going to blame her, then I'll blame you. What do you think? Right? You know, and, and then, you know, little do we know that there was also an attorney that was present that day <laughs> representing Adam and saying, hey, you know what? I think he's got a point. See, see how it works? I'm responsible. Can you kind of just, on three, one, two, three, can you say it? One, two, three. I'm responsible. Or I am responsible. <laughs> but, you know, stop and think about how life could change if we just owned up to our mistakes. I am responsible. Wouldn't it be wonderful if Magic Johnson said, Hey, I am responsible for what happened to me. I made some bad decisions over a long period of time, and I'm responsible for the consequences. I have no one to blame but myself. I have no one to blame but myself. And it wasn't a lack of information, and it wasn't a lack of education, and I didn't... Hey, I'm responsible because I chose to do what I did, and now I'm paying the price. Wouldn't that be a wonderful message for kids of our country to hear? I made a mistake. And now, i got to pay the price. Man, I'll tell you what, that would be a wonderful thing for our kids to learn, that I'm responsible. But our society says, you're not responsible because you were abused when you were a child. Because you're a codependent. Because, uh, you know, your father was an alcoholic. Because... Uh, you were, you know, you, 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 you left your boots off one day when you were six years old and you were walking to first grade and it snowed outside and you got cold feet and you end up getting a cold and all because of that, you're not responsible for anything else that you ever do again the rest of your life. I stepped on the stop set, I, I, I stood on the top step of the ladder that says, do not stand here and I fell and I think that the ladder company is responsible. And we've got a whole society of people that sit in jury boxes that say, yeah, you know what? Now, we can't hold them responsible because we may end up doing something like that someday and we may want to have 12 people like us sitting here saying, yeah, give them a couple of mail. See, you know, who are we to judge, right? No one's responsible for anything. You are responsible. God doesn't buy it. Because what I see in Scripture is this. If any man or woman is in Christ, Old things pass away, and all things become new. And I think if we could just spend a little more time in the Word of God, knowing who we are in Jesus Christ, 
rather than all the reasons that we can continue doing what we want to do because of the past that we have, we'd be a lot better off, number one, as Christians who can make an impact on the world that we live in, and also, number two, as people who would have some sanity and, and a clear purpose and presence of mind that we don't have to let the past haunt us because we all have a past. And we all have an excuse if we want to run with that one, but I believe what God says rather than all the things my past trying to tell me. I'm responsible. Doesn't matter what my dad was like. Doesn't matter what my mom was like. Doesn't matter what was going on in my background. I'm responsible for anything that I choose to do today. I'm responsible. Interesting statement. I must not forget. There's a man, an old man, who was standing on the end of a pier, and he was feeding a bunch of seagulls. Yeah, I know. You know, you didn't hear anything else. You've been waiting for this all morning. Hope it's worth it. Anyway, there's, there's an old man who was standing at the end of the pier, and he was feeding a bunch of seagulls with a bucket of shrimp. All right? The old man's name was Eddie Rickenbacker. Now, some of you were alive in October of 1942. Tom was 50 then. So, so he remembers. But so, how many, seriously, how many remember Eddie Rickenbacker, October 1942? What happened? He was chosen to deliver a message to General Douglas MacArthur. He handpicked eight men who would be his crew. They flew in a B-17. It was called the Flying Fortress. Somehow, some way, some reason, they got lost in the South Pacific. They ran out of fuel and they had to ditch their plane. They ditched the plane, the eight men survived, they climbed into life rafts, and they floated around for the next seven days out in the South Pacific. They battled the weather, they battled the water, they battled the sharks, and they battled the sun. And if you've ever been south of the equator, there's nothing more intense than the sun that you'll battle there. In fact, we've been to French Polynesia a couple of times, I'll never forget the first time that we went. Last thing that we were told to do was make sure you stay covered, make sure you wear like nine, number 97 sunblock and wear a hat, make sure that you take care of it because the sun is intense. Now, feeling that I'm a fairly dark white guy that, de- that never burns, and I tell my wife this time, I never burn, I thought, they don't know who they're talking to. Did you ever burn a pill three times in one day? I mean, it was brutal, man, it was brutal. Anyway, so they're out in the sun, and they're floating around on the raft. And after the eighth day, they run out all their rations. They have no food left, they have no water, they have nothing. So they have a morning devotion, and they start to pray. And they ask God for a miracle. After the devotion's over, they go and they lay down in the raft, and they try to catch some rest and save their energy. And Eddie Rickenbacker pulls a hat down over his eyes, and he's laying there in the raft. And he feels something on his head. And he looks up and he sees a seagull's head ducking down like this, looking at his face. And he thinks, if I can get this bird, we can eat and we might be able to live. But I don't want to scare it away. And he reaches up to get it and the bird steps off his hat and stands right on his finger. He pulls the bird down. They kill the bird. They eat the bird. They use its intestines to fish and they catch fish with it. And they survived for several more days, and they were they were and they were saved, they were rescued. Now, what's the point? I think the point is very simple. I must not forget. Every Friday night, Eddie Rickenbacker goes to the end of a pier with a bucket of shrimp, and he throws them out as a memorial to give thanks to God for what He did in His life.
Now, some of us say, boy, that's extreme, isn't it? And I'll tell you what. I think we would do well to learn from that man because for some of us, we go a lot longer than a week without stopping to give thanks for what God's done in our life. And I thought, you know, what God was saying is true. and What Moses warned Israel is so true that there is a tendency on the part of God's people to forget God and how actively involved He is in our life. Say, wow, that's extreme. No, I don't think it's extreme. Because you know what Eddie Rickenbacker does? Every time he looks up into the sky, he realizes that he was delivered by a God who loves him. See, he was given a sacrificial visitor, so to speak. And then I thought, you know what? That's no different than us. See, because we had a sacrificial visitor who came 2,000 years ago, approximately. And in order for us to live, he died just like that bird. And we need to constantly be reminded of what God has done in our life. And you will never do wrong to give thanks to God for what He has done. And so often when we're tested, we accuse God, why are you allowing this to happen to me? Instead of realizing that He's allowing it because He loves us, He wants us to endure, He wants us to be strengthened, and He wants us to be perfected so that we really know in our own hearts how much we truly love Him because He already knows. I must not forget. What a great story. What a great truth. And hopefully, what a great conviction in our own life to people who always want gimme, 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 gimme and forget what's already been done. I don't know what it'll take. Maybe every Friday night. I don't know. I mean, it's like, maybe, maybe I was thinking February 16, 1978, I, I accepted Jesus Christ. I thought, you know what would be great? Maybe every February 16th to have a celebration to remind me of where God has brought me from by simply choosing to trust in Jesus and what he's done since then. I don't know. I, I mean, I, I don't know what it will take in your own life, but I know as I read that and, and, and heard that, I was convicted about what I need to be doing. I must not forget. I am accountable. I am accountable to God, whether I'm in a high school classroom whether I'm out on a high school football field, a high school locker room, a professional locker room, whether I'm in Atlanta for the weekend with the Rams, whether I'm at my office, whether I'm out to lunch, whether I'm out with friends, whether I'm here, wherever I am, I am accountable to God. Whether you see me or you don't see me, I don't care. It shouldn't matter. You can walk in on me anytime that you want. Sneak into my office, talk to people I do business with, check up on me. See, it shouldn't make any difference whether you see me or not. Because I am accountable to God, I'm not accountable to you. I don't answer to you. I may if I'm not living right before God, but I answer to Him first. What a wonderful message to tell your kids. Look, you're not accountable to me, you are while you live in our house. But the reality is that you're accountable to God foremost above everything else. So whether we see you or we don't see you, whether we catch you or we don't catch you, you're not fooling anybody because God sees everything and He knows. And you will answer to Him. Don't be deceived. God's not mocked. Whatever a man sows, whatever a little kid sows, whatever a teenager sows, that's what they're going to reap. 
And what we need to teach them is to be prepared. Tell them, I'm responsible. I got a D because I was messing up and I didn't study like I should have. I am responsible. I must not forget what God's already done. I'm accountable to God no matter where I am. And you know what? And the last thing we'll close on this is, I get my standard and my security from Him. Not from anybody else. See, a person who is secure in their relationship with the God of the universe who loved them and gave himself up for them, the person who is in Christ knows one thing and one thing only, it's the only thing that matters, that who I am is because of who Jesus is and what he's done, and I don't care about anything else or what anybody else thinks. I don't worry about it. I can't worry about it. And whether you like me or you don't like me, whether you come to listen or you don't come to listen, it doesn't matter because my security and my standard comes from Him. And if He says, Chuck, the only thing I ask you to do is be faithful and just teach the Word. Whether people come or they don't come, that's not your responsibility. You just be faithful. You do what you're supposed to do. That's a wonderful thing to not have to worry about what you're all thinking. And I say it often and I'll say it again because frankly, I don't care. It doesn't matter. Some of you like me, some of you don't. Some of you think I should part my hair a different way. Some of you like the tie, they don't. I don't care. Who cares? You know? And, and when people come up and they tell me stuff like that, I just kind of think, you know what? <laughs> Who cares? I don't really care. But let me ask you this. Am I faithful to teach the Word of God? That's all that matters. That's all God cares about. And that's all you and I should care about. And I'll tell you what, if that's true of your life, then you'll be able to stand firm in whatever arena, whatever environment God puts you in when you're tested. And if you do, God promises that he'll draw people to himself because of your faithfulness. What a wonderful thing. Let's pray. Father, thanks for the time we have together. We just uh, ask that uh, we can leave here with something practical, that we will be challenged. And I just can't help but think about Eddie Rickenbacker and just the way that he is constantly reminded of what you've done in his life. Lord, may we never forget where you've called us from and where you promised that we'll end up. God, we thank you for that. We just want to thank you for the adversity that's in our life today. For the people who are against your ways, who persecute us because we take a stand for you, who think that we're off the wall, who think we're nutso, who think we're Jesus freaks, who think we flipped out, who whatever it is that they think. We just thank you that they're in our life, that we can have some impact and impression on them as we stand firm on your word. Father, we just need to understand that we are responsible for our actions. We can't blame anybody else, but we need to take the responsibility ourselves. God, give us the wisdom to make right choices and choices that are based on the sound word of God. Lord, we thank you for the benefits that come along with right choices. Lord, help us to realize that we're accountable to you above anybody else, no matter where we're at, no matter who we're with. And may you convict us the next time we're in a crowd of people who want us to conform to be like the group. May you give us the courage and the strength and the conviction to stand firm when we're tested in that arena. And Father, we're just grateful that our security is in you. That we don't have to worry about what men think. We don't have to worry about fearing men, pleasing men bidding everything just to please you. And we thank you for the strength and the security and the peace and the contentment that comes in a right relationship with you. Father, thanks for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.